Are you someone who enjoys a good glass of wine but is never sure just what to get? Indulge your inner enophile and take the guesswork out of wine by signing up for the National Review Wine Club. All of our wines are selected by a team with more than 150 years of collective experience buying, judging, and making wine. We weed through the thousands of wines out there to select the very best of the best and deliver it straight to your door, all at an unbeatable price. Not only that, the Wine Club is also a great way to support our valuable conservative journalism here at National Review. A portion of every order goes to helping us grow our team and editorial impact. And there's no time better than today. Our introductory special delivers four of our hand-selected wines straight to your door, for only $29.99. So head over to nationalreviewwineclub.com today and get ready to kick back with an exquisite bottle of wine in the comfort of your own home. Claudine Gay steps down and Nikki Haley tries to live down her slavery answer. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry. I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity, Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Moink. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, it finally happened at this grand edifice of Claudine Gay, this scholarly giant who has uh, such an enormous contribution that she's made to the institution of Harvard, finally falls after yet another plagiarism Accusation, not an accusation, another instance of plagiarism. She has uh, not a less written, than fifty. Yeah, so she's uh, she's not written a book. You know, all of us are written books, and if we probably had more time, we could even make our books. You know, works of scholarship. She hasn't. I think she's written what like eleven scholarly articles. Nothing new in them in her field, and it turns out she copied a lot of verbiage. And clearly, the intention of Harvard was just to to gut this. Out uh, there, are, there are a lot of soundings. Wow, this this is such so so terrible. What's happening to her? She's being targeted by these nasty right wingers. And then over the weekend, you had another tranche of uh, instances of plagiarism, and obviously became too much. And Claudine Gay is on her way out. What do you make of it? Well, let me begin by saying, if you're a listener out there whose instinct is I don't care about Harvard University and who runs it, okay, I get that. You know, this is definitely an, an issue that is of much more importance to those who went there, and I suppose to everybody who applied and got rejected, which is probably a good <laughs> chunk of our media elites, uh, but didn't apply, never had a chance of getting in there, in case you're wondering if my, my perspective is <laughs> shaped by that. Um, I generated more Cs than an agreeable uh, Spaniard. Um, the resignation letter of Claudine Gay, that as far as we know, she wrote herself, uh, really offers no expression of regret or remorse for any of her actions. There's no admission of wrongdoing. Uh, there's only the briefest and vaguest allusion to, as I mentioned, the nearly 50 cases of plagiarism. 
but she did characterize the her critics as fueled by racial animus. And if you look at the statement from the fellows of Harvard College, which which sounds so warm and friendly, fellows um, says very similar statements that she's you know uh, she's always been guided by the best interest of the institution. And her commitment is deep and selfless, and we, you know, uh, we do accept her resignation with sorrow. Now they say Gay, President Gay has acknowledged missteps and taken responsibility for them. I think what they mean is that she apologized when she testified before Congress that in certain circumstances, calling for the genocide of goo- of Jews might not count as bullying. I'd love to think about what circumstances are they, President Gay? What are the circumstances in which it's not that bad and would not violate Harvard's code of conduct? Now, she said she got caught up in an extended combative exchange, i.e., it's all, it's all that nasty Elise Stefanik's fault. But she says, you know, I failed to convey what is my truth, is what Gay said. But then the plagiarism things just kept adding up and adding up and adding up. And then the, Harvard allegedly says we investigated, wink, wink, and, you know, gave her a pass. And then the next thing that we, you know, event, I think a bunch of people in the Harvard community recognize that what it turned out to be not just one or two or not just a vague one, you know, just kept piling up higher and higher. Um, this is what gets you in serious trouble if you're a student at Harvard University. There's a voting member of the Harvard College Honor Council wrote in the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper there, quote, by definition, Gay's corrections were not proactive, but reactive. She only made them after she was caught. And that the Harvard University considers her corrections inadequate response is not fair to undergraduates who cannot simply submit corrections to avoid penalties. There is one standard for me and my peers and another much lower standard for our university's president. The corporation should resolve the double standard by demanding her resignation. We don't know if they demanded it, but it does sound like this was a topic of intense discussion because a couple of days ago, the indication was, no, no, we've given her a clean bill of health. She's hunky-dory. Everything's fine. Um, now Harvard may well, the idea that, well, she didn't really do anything all that wrong. She, you know, innocent, understandable mistakes, but we at Harvard have to let her go because the racists are just that powerful. You're Harvard university. You have a $50 billion endowment. Four of the current Supreme court justices went to Harvard. Two of the past four presidents, about 40 or 50 members of Congress, about 40 or 50 CEOs of the fortune 500. Harvard might be the single most powerful an influential institution in the United States outside of the federal government. And they had, oh, we had no choice. We had to let her go. No, 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 no. What happened was she had done so much damage and she had done such a glaring contradiction between the standards for Harvard students and the standards for the president of Harvard University that it was going to start doing damage to an institution that requires families to believe sending your child there is worth $80,000 a year once you add up tuition, housing, and food. Yeah. So th- there is there is someone known on on CNN who who said uh, a reporter, no, oh, well she she wasn't stealing ideas she was only copying verbiage you know so so this wasn't so bad but any of us who yes are, plagiarism are, that's what yeah. they call it <laughs> so any of us who who write you know whether you're you're writing scholarly works or you're writing journalism I think live live in, in fear of accidentally copying something at least I do you know I I copy text. Uh, in, into uh, the bottom of columns, you know, to use as as a reference. And every time I do it, I put quote marks around it just in case, you know, something gets fouled up, and I, I accidentally paste something where where it shouldn't be pasted. And I, I try to over source. You know, sometimes it hurts a little bit to say, well, 
this comes from this book or this is according to this person because you know you you want to be omniscient you know as 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 a writer but you do it to um uh stay on the right side of the line don't even get anywhere close to the wrong side of the line and she was over it repeatedly so this is clearly someone it it wasn't just sloppiness uh s- someone who uh, didn't care or didn't have the capability uh, of of doing this stuff herself and she was elevated to this supreme position in our academic world based on on politics and uh, race and gender. It's very much worth emphasizing that point that you made, that it is something that we live in professional fear of every day and take pains to avoid even the appearance of, or the accidentally, uh, the inadvertent appearance of contributing to the impression that you've lifted whole passages. It's actually kind of hard to do that. The English language is a, a phenomenal vehicle for unique expression. It's actually difficult to say more than eight or nine words in a row that are the exact same words that somebody else in your field writing on the same subject has already written, even though it sounds like that's even that's something that could happen to anybody. It's not easy. And the this campaign only worked, this campaign against Claudine Gay only worked because of Harvard's complicity. It was a very classic leak campaign where it's, you know, drip, 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 this evidence, this evidence, this evidence. But that only works if your target plays along. Your target has to dig in, has to establish for themselves positions that become untenable with the release of the next piece of information. Harvard did this to itself. Flooding Gay did it to her own institution, subjecting it to reputational damage for weeks on end. Uh, It's unfortunate that this had nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do, with her performance in front of a congressional committee, defending essentially the idea that you can engage in anti-Semitic harassment up to and until the point that it constitutes violence. That wasn't what did did her in. Her institution was happy to stand behind her, quite unlike Liz McGill at the University of Pennsylvania, who despite her very pale complexion was defenestrated for that very same offense. Um, What we've seen here is a lot of excuse making, a lot of efforts to suggest both two things that are incompatible. One, that um, Al Sharpton, for example, is protesting against Bill Ackman, this investor who was going after Claudine Gay, hammer and tong, for saying, alleging that this is, it's an assault, insult to her and the institution to suggest that she was anything other than a diversity hire, which can be an insult unless the institution itself is promoting that. Harvard gets to say, well, this is a victory for, for black women everywhere. And indeed, her, her her resignation is an attack, according to Al Sharpton, on black women everywhere, and they should all rally around her, which betrays kind of a suspicious level of estim- a suspiciously low estimation of the academic work produced by black ed- academicians. But you don't get to say that and then also feign theatrical offense when people like Eric Deegans over at National or NPR are saying, well, now she has to be replaced with another black woman, otherwise it would be a step back. It's one or the other. Either it's either this is a diversity issue and she fills checks a box that now needs to be checked again, or her sterling academic credentials speak for themselves. It cannot be both. In fact, it is obviously not both now. So they're left with one conclusion, the conclusion that conservatives have been drawing for quite some time that is now hard to deny, but we're, you know, so now that you can't deny it, we're left with you know, garment rending and big dramatic performances about the great injustice that has been done here. This is a banal situation. Anybody in her position, in any academic position, faculty or otherwise, would have experienced the same consequences. The only thing remarkable about 
blood and gay situation is how long it took her to realize that she was doing so much reputational harm to herself and her institution that she had to get out of there. Yeah, Charlie, it's it's also a disservice to every deserving uh, African-American or minority academic. I mean, this is obviously a point that's been made against the affirmative action regime for a very long time. Tom, Thomas Sowell has written about it very powerfully, but it creates the presumption that you're only there, not based on merit, but based on race and gender considerations. Also, just making her president of Harvard and then defending her so long on this was profoundly condescending to her, right? Obviously, she she does not have the uh, discernment or just doesn't care to realize that. But again, someone like Thomas Sowell would have and would have said, screw you. You know, I'll go make it on my own someplace else. I don't need this handout from you. But that was not that was not the attitude. No, as Noah says, they always try to have it both ways when defending affirmative action or identity politics. They say, without our beneficence, no person of color could possibly make it. Also, how dare you suggest they've been helped? I think this incident has been interesting in that it has exposed the anti-intellectualism of many of our supposedly intellectual institutions and highlighted a shift that has led to the first high-profile failure in recent memory. The responses to the allegations have all been poor. The responses have been, well, look at who's making the accusations. That's a fallacy. Well, the person who's being accused is black or a woman. That's a fallacy. Or, well, okay, but what does this have to do with the initial problem, which was her congressional testimony? That's a fallacy. But the good thing is that it didn't work. I think I'm going to write something about this today. It didn't work. They tried everything. Barack Obama got involved, trying to put pressure on Harvard to keep her. They tried the race card. They tried the feminist card. They tried to redefine plagiarism. They held a fake investigation. They tried to drag it out so that people would forget about it. They went after the messenger. And it didn't work. She's gone. No one cared. They threw all the usual stuff at all the usual suspects. And no one caved. No one was cowed. I think we are seeing a palpable reduction in the power of elite institutions to bully those who are telling the truth out of their willingness to do so. And I think that we saw that here, and I think it is welcome, because this is a purely elite question. It does matter. I'm not suggesting that this is irrelevant. It is important. But the decisions that are made here and the people who are involved are in the elite class. They are journalists and academics and billionaire investors. If those people don't give up when the playbook is indulged, then Claudine Gay and those like her lose their position. There's no populist garrison waiting here. There's no Hessian backup army 
the modern progressive power base is built on sand relative to, say, the power base during the New Deal. Claudine Gay has to appeal to a very small set of people. She has to keep those people on side. And if she can't do it, she's toast. She can't go down to the local pipefitters union and try to build some coalition, some farm labor coalition, some coalition of middle class people who care about this or that. And I think that Americans at all levels looked at this and said, well, firstly, I don't particularly care whether Claudine Gay is the president of Harvard. Who exactly was clamoring for this? And then the people who really mattered, one by one, acknowledged that she'd actually done it and that the arguments that were being advanced in her defense were really weak. So I'm pleased about this. For, for the first time that I can remember, the powerful institutions in our culture tried everything and they lost. And in so doing, they showed the rest of us how to prevail. So Jim Garrity, following on from that exit question to you first, this victory in the ouster of Claudine Gay represents an inflection point in the direction of American elite higher education. Yes or no? This is the first exit question of the year, Jim. Don't mess it up. So actually, I was at the National Review Christmas party having a conversation about this exact topic. And somebody raised the question, would the long-term, those who find Harvard University to be this hopelessly uh, frustrating, out-of-touch institution that defends values that are un-American, would we be better off if Gay stayed? That, that is it better if she's, you know, like, because if you replace her, the next president of Harvard University is not likely to have a dramatically different attitude on any of these issues in the long run. Uh, is it better to have her there and stay as this giant glaring sign of their hypocrisy and the double standards and all that kind of stuff? Um, so no, I don't think it'll be an inflection point. I think the next president of Harvard will have largely the same philosophy. But I think it was useful to establish that there are limits, that at some point, hypocrisy, this kind of ludicrous double standard starts to do damage to the institution, reputation of an institution, even one as powerful as Harvard University. So, Jim, I don't know what's better, better or worse. Charlie gathers information for, the, for this podcast from a Florida bar. You gather it from National Review Christmas parties. So I, I, oh, I think one should be considered better than other on this podcast. <laughs> Noah Rothman, inflection point, yes or no? Well, I, I'm tempted to say that her resignation is a symptom of an inflection point. But it has, it's not in and of itself an inflection point. I really do think what has happened on American campuses since the October 7th massacre has been a mugged by reality moment for a lot of good liberals, a lot of good liberals with deep pockets. And they've made their power known in ways that were previously dismissed, discounted, or just simply not understood. It's kind of the Bill Ackmans of the world? Correct. You're talking about? The bottom uh -huh. line is the, is the problem here. The applications yeah. declining is the problem here. And I think that is an inflection point. It's a it, it has the, the capacity to focus the mind when you start looking at the bottom line and seeing a lot of red. And so, yeah, I do think that there's uh, there has been an inflection point. I don't think Claudine Gay is representative of much beyond Claudine Gay and Harvard, but academia in general has had to confront a lot of its uh, untested biases in the last couple of months. And I do think that will continue. So, Charlie, we have a no on the board and a symptom of an inflection point 
on the board. Well, I'm with Noah, although I would add that I think that the disease was in full force prior to October 7th, and the symptoms were already flowing from it. The place that academia occupies in our culture was shifting. We were beginning to understand that the financial cost was not worth it, that what many universities were teaching was absurd, and that the leading lights within academia had created all sorts of rules for themselves that were not being observed elsewhere. And I think that the combination of that and the shock of October 7th provided a backdrop against which this can be plausibly described as a symptom. So I'm with Noah, but I I would go back a little further. I don't think Harvard was in a stronger position three months ago as it thought it was. <clears throat> so I guess I'm with Jim. I think inflection point is too strong. It's definitely been the worst couple of months for the, the DEI orthodoxy on college campuses ever uh, that has ever in, encountered. And in this particular episode, you know, hats off to Elise Stefanik, who in three minutes set all this in motion, and to our friends at the Washington Free Beacon, Chris Rufo and others who uh, went after the plagiarism stuff, hammer and tongs. So it's 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 been good and encouraging. I just think the, the whole DEI and ideological corruption is such a massive uh, battleship. You know, really turning it will be a, a generational uh, effort and just may may never happen. With that, let's go to our first sponsor of our first episode of the new year, and we are delighted that the first sponsor is Moink. And let's go to Charlie. Yes, Charlie, who has eaten a lot of Moink meat and salmon over the break. Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, New Year's Day. It's been a Moink era. And that's because Moink is simply better. 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company, which is owned by the Chinese. And their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China. But you will find it in your grocery aisle every day. But there is a better way. And so once again, I would like to tell you about Moink. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did. And as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm does it better. The Moink difference is a difference you can taste. And you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent too. Here's how it works. You choose the meat delivered in every box. You can get ribeyes, chicken breasts, pork chops, salmon fillets, much more. And you can cancel any time, although obviously you won't want to. We must have been having deliveries to the cook household for three years, four years now. We've never canceled, have no intention of doing so. We are in that respect like Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary, who called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted. And like Ring Doorbell founder Jamie Simonoff, who jumped at the chance to invest in Moink. If you want to get in on the action and keep American farming going, you can sign up at our special link. That's moinkbox.com slash editors, M-O-I-N-K-B-O-X.com 
slash editors. And if you do, as a listener of this show, you'll get free ground beef for a year. That's one whole year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time only. Thanks so much, Charlie. So let, let me uh, stick, stick with you, Charlie. We had this gaffe by Nikki Haley the other day. It's had amazing legs. People are still talking about it. She was asked at a New Hampshire event what caused the Civil War and just acted like she was cornered. You know, like she'd never considered this question before. There was no way out for her. She just had to kind of tap dance around and try to throw the question back at the the questioner and ask rhetorically what what he wanted her to say about slavery. And it was was not a good moment and uh, v- very weird. I, I guess she she was scared, you know, and thought that she, she could offend some people by saying the wrong thing about this. And even if there are Republicans out there who would be offended, you know, if she just flat out said, yeah, it was, it was slavery, there are not many of them and they're not her voters and she needs independents and Democrats in, in New Hampshire if she's going to uh, pull off a, a win there, which is, which is not um, inconceivable now. I mean, she's continued to gain in New Hampshire is up to 30% uh, percent in some polls, but what did you make of it? Well, I thought that the reason that it had legs was that it was embarrassing in every possible way it was embarrassing because it showed cowardice during primaries politicians like to cast themselves as the strongest on offer that's the one who will take the fight and win the election and bring the change and corral the congress and vanquish their enemies And she was clearly rattled, and she ended up asking the question, well, what do you want me to say? That was the first problem. Second problem was that she then engaged in the same sort of defense as Claudine Gay's apologists by complaining about the supposed party registration or ideological agenda of the person who asked the question, which is, of course, irrelevant. Yeah, it may be true that that person doesn't like Nikki Haley or set out to create a viral moment, but that's going to happen to you if you're in politics, especially if you're running for president. Primaries are, in one sense, a test of that. You need to know who has a glass jaw, who can deal with that. And she didn't do it well, people noticed. The main reason, though, was that her answer was wrong and illiterate. And the wrong part... I find almost more understandable. I don't find it justifiable or admirable, but I do understand that politicians pander. She's from South Carolina. Perhaps she is used to people having strong reactions when this question is debated. The Civil War was about slavery. That was the root cause. That was the original sin. But she didn't even engage in that debate. It wasn't as if she came out and said, well, I think you have to understand that there were various socioeconomic questions at the heart of this, or that it was about sovereignty, or that if you look at the presumptions embedded within the Declaration of Independence and the federal system, then you know, she didn't do that. She said nothing. She sounded like somebody who had been asked to comment on a book that she'd never read. I mean, you had told me that Nikki Haley had never before looked into the Civil War, or even that she didn't know what it was. I don't think I would have pushed back. <laughs> Her answer had nothing to do. So, 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 Charlie, though, don't you think she was sort of trying to say slavery without using the word? She kept on saying it was about freedoms and the role of government. 
Well, I don't really. I, I mean, look, perhaps you're right. I don't know what's going on in her head. But I don't understand how you can be that attenuated in your description of the question without ever saying anything that showed that you have your own opinion or coming to any conclusion. I mean, it, it's it's a bit like if you asked <laughs> so, an engineer, well, is this bridge going to stand up? And they say, well, it's all to do with the gravity and integrity and structure. <laughs> like, well, okay, fine. But I, I, I just, across the board, the reason this had legs was that it was damaging in every sense. It was substantively damaging. It was damaging to her self-conception as uh, a high-heeled Margaret Thatcher figure who kicks ass and tells the truth. And it was damaging because afterwards she blamed the person for asking the question (laughs) rather than reevaluated what she'd said. So, Jim, she she also got hit by a a pincer movement here, which is, you know, part part of... uh, being in a competitive Republican primary, but you had folks on MSNBC see this shows how retrograde the Republican Party still is on on race and how corrupted Nikki Haley is. And then you had the, the MAGA folks and the DeSantis folks saying, see, you get her off script and this is what happens. Yeah, look, this is the nature of uh, any non-front runner uh, or really anybody who's competing for the Republican primary. You know, if you are a Republican, you're probably used to getting criticism from the Democrats. You're probably used to getting criticism from most of what we would call the mainstream media. <laughs> but then you also get it from everybody else in the race. And if you are Nikki Haley, you've got you know one person who is, who's well ahead of you, who has no problem calling you bird brain, etc. And really flubbing a question on the Civil War and its causes really kind of feels like a uh, uh, that's not going to dispel the, the, you know, the, 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 the sneer bird brain. Um, and of course, DeSantis, who's, you know, needs every vote he get, can get is going to, uh, glom onto that and, and tout it. Um, a lot of the usual, uh, Charlie pointed out, it doesn't matter if it's a gotcha question, like you want to be president of the United States, you should be able to handle a gotcha question. You should be able to, you know, handle something like this. Um, and you know, well, oh, it's taken out of context, you know, in that column I write for that other place in Washington, I wrote the entire transcript because it wasn't like. Oh, later on, she went like, like the, you know, the questioner mentioned slavery. And if, if Haley had said, oh, you know, I forgot to, yeah, slavery, you know, like it's a long <laughs> oh, day of slavery. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, like you could have done a little bit of damage control right then and there, but it's essentially, what do you want me to say about slavery? Was <laughs> this like, you know, um, bizarrely, you know, almost combative stance. Look, I think what happens, you know, like is, is Nikki Haley a racist? No, she's the one who took down the Confederate flag from the state capitol grounds. But I noticed that when she did it, you go back to look at her remarks, it is like very non-antagonistic to, I don't know what you want to call them, neo-Confederates or people who have really fond, you know, uh, a fond view of the Confederacy. She wanted to remove the flag, but she did not want to relitigate the entire cause of the Civil War. And I think that's the autopilot that she was on, forgetting that she's running in New Hampshire and, and that, you know, in large chunks of the country, the Civil War was caused by slavery. Really not a controversial statement. You know, you can argue, oh, there were some other facts, but really, it was about states' rights. Yes, the states' rights to have the institution of slavery. It's pretty, pretty straightforward there. And, you know, the idea that, that this was bad. Now, I'm surprised, Rich, that you said you feel like this is still getting legs. This was towards the mm-hmm. end of last year or a couple of days into January I, I feel like I haven't heard anything about it in like, you know, since New Year's. Oh, really? Okay. We'll see. I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, the people will bring it up. 
I don't think this is going to define her candidacy mm-hmm. other than the fact that like, you know, we're getting towards crunch, crunch time. Uh, Iowa votes on the 15th and there's just a limited amount of time between now and then to make impressions yeah. and something like this doesn't help. Yeah, no, I have to say, I, I find the back and forth between DeSantis and Nikki Haley kind of increasingly just sort of, sort of pathetic. Um, you know, the DeSantis people jumped all over this, understandably, but there was an email that sent out the other day. It's like, look at Nikki Haley. She's trying to reduce expectations in Iowa, but she's going to spend three times as much as, as we are in Iowa in the final weeks. Like, this is like a selling point. Yeah, because you ran out of this, money. Yeah, you're putting this in your own emails. You know, this is where you thought you'd be um, prior to, uh, you know, a couple months Why ago. Why are you when, fighting somebody who's behind you? Yeah, Why exactly. Well, she's, person, she's yeah. you know, she's not behind him, right? Except for in, in Iowa now, increasingly. But they're kind of, you know, they're they're arguing over who's going to be in the, the high teens um, in, in, uh, in a lot of respects. And the Iowa polling just, you know, I, I, I believe in late Iowa surges. You know, maybe there's some miracle still lurking out there, but you have Trump above 50%, which is just unheard of in a multi-candidate field in, in Iowa. And There'd have to be a massive polling error coupled with some inc- the most incredible ground game uh, surge that we've ever seen uh, from in, in Iowa from from DeSantis to, to even get this thing uh, close. It looks like. Oh, Rich, my Twitter mentions are telling are going to go after you now. DeSantis is going to win Iowa big. All, all the polling is wrong. All the mm-hmm. data is wrong. Those door knockers are going to change the world. So anyway, no. I mean, the whole news cycle around this event felt like a throwback to a time before Trump. Uh, just about everything that these two candidates are doing feels as though it is running, they're running a race in which Donald Trump just isn't a factor. And they're simply seeking to avoid confronting the biggest obstacle before their, their, obje- their objectives here. So when you have a gaffe like this, it kind of it matters in one of two ways, if it matters at all. One being that it exposes some sort of a tendency, some sort of a latent element that the candidate has been attempting to conceal and it just bursts forth and is no longer deniable. And the second is that it ratifies an existing critique. And I don't think either of these criterion criteria fit with this particular gaffe. I mean, as everybody has said, and I agree, that it's probably evidence of some sort of muscle memory she's retained from her time trying to climb the ladder in South Carolina politics. Sure. Not exactly a defense, but an explanation. Um, But it does feel like she's been trying to play it safe for a while. Nikki Haley had a bad debate, her worst debate in the final debate of 2023. Um, And that matters because her ascendancy is due almost entirely to her performance in debates. And subsequently, Mm -hmm. in the weeks that have followed, she's been trying to play this almost like a front-runner role, just trying not to step on landmines to a degree that makes the pirouettes that she's engaged in kind of conspicuous and actually a little ungainly. Um, And I think it's complicated, however, though, by this notion here, and and, uh, our colleague Jeff Flair wrote a very good piece about how this might affect Nikki Haley's campaign insofar as it demonstrates that she's a panderer. And I just think that's complicated by how she's campaigned thus far. She has campaigned as somebody who's willing to tell hard truths to Republicans. Along the, mm-hmm. some, like, you, you need 60 votes in the Senate to pass legislation. I know that sounds weird and you don't like it, but it's the truth. Donald Trump's going to spend most of 2024 in courtrooms. I know that's not something we're supposed to talk about in public, but it's true. 
this is how she's made her name so far. So to tar her as a panderer, as though that is revealing of her entire character, I just don't think fits. I feel like a lot of this has a lot to do with the time it occurred in the news cycle in which absolutely nothing of consequence was happening and the necessity to try to make something dis- dissipate her momentum. But no, I think, momentum. I but think that's I, why I, I, I just want to briefly go on record here and say that I don't think any of this matters after the Colorado thing. Colorado Supreme Court has has flooded the zone, and I don't think there's a single thing that any of these candidates can do to arrest that condition. But insofar as this is a momentum killer for Nikki Haley, I just I don't necessarily see it. Charlie? Well, I'm not sure it'll be a momentum killer, but I think the reason it hurt is that it stepped on her self-image as a truth teller. It made her look weak, and it did so on a pretty important topic that people feel strongly about. And she was in the Northeast. She was in New Hampshire. (laughs) There's really not much of a constituency in New Hampshire for lost causism. So I agree with you that she has told a lot of truths. She's the only person, for example, who will admit that we have an entitlement problem. But I think that's when you are damaged by mistakes, is when you are trading on that, and then in a moment that is highly publicized on a topic that is emotive, you fail to live up to your image. Yeah, just a couple follow-on thoughts, and then I'll, I'll go, Jim, to you again first on on the exit questions. I'm going to double barrel it, but you know th- this is like just a huge advantage that Donald Trump has with his image with Republicans. Is he's just he's he's fearless, <clears throat> and he might say stupid and irresponsible things, but that you, you never see the calculation happening in real time. And he thinks about what he's going to say a lot, actually, as, as well. That's why he's totally changed his tune or his tone, at least. On, on abortion, but with DeSantis, you see the gears going. With Nikki Haley, you know, you saw a version of the same thing here, except for the, the gears got uh, stuck. I also think probably, no, I haven't, I haven't like uh, written it down and gritted it out and can't say this authoritatively, but I believe DeSantis has been more critical of, of Trump uh, of late than uh, Nikki Haley was. They, they played a clip on Brett Baer's show last night, a clip from every candidate talking about the main uh, decision to knock Trump off off the ballot was completely outrageous. But, you know, even Christie and Haley are like, this this is wrong, shouldn't happen. And DeSantis was like, this is wrong. If it happened to any any of the rest of us, Trump would be delighted. So, so you know, maybe take that into consideration, uh, DeSantis was saying. And then finally, what you're saying about the, the debates, I, I agree that last debate, the image that sticks with me and maybe, uh, you know, I'm, I'm alone in this was Haley kind of looking down demurely as Chris Christie was defending her, which is not not a great look. But all that said, you know, the New Hampshire polling has continued to be good. You add up Christie to Nikki Haley, that's too simplistic. Maybe um, Christie is never going to do the right thing uh, and and get out. But you add Christie to to Haley, and she's she's almost right there with Trump. I'd say there's like a 30% chance she wins New Hampshire. I just, uh, I'm increasingly doubtful that will make any difference. But anyway, the exit question to you, Jim Gary, the first part, is the granddaddy of all 2024 exit questions. So we might as well start asking it early. Donald Trump will be elected the next president of the United States, yes or no? <laughs> you want yes or no, not, not percentages or anything like that? Yes or no. If you had to guess now. 
I'm going to say no, but it's it's a fairly close call. No. Okay, two things. Briefly, once, I just want to <laughs> tag your real, sure. Ron DeSantis yeah, because you had okay, said okay. Ron DeSantis is more critical of Donald Trump. And this is something the DeSantis camp is retailing very aggressively in the last couple of days, that Nikki Haley doesn't criticize Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis does. And it's true sort of insofar as Ron DeSantis has narrow-casted critiques of Donald Trump throughout this ca- campaign on vaccines, on Anthony Fauci, addressing directly his voters. Nikki Haley has been critical, less critical of Donald Trump overtly, but the criticisms that she does retail are broadcast. They are Donald Trump is going to be convicted of a crime. That is a big message that appeals to a lot of people. It's a broader kind of critique, and so it's a, it's a distinction that matters. Second, your big question, will Donald Trump be elected to the presidency? He's got to do one of two things in order to do that. One, convince a lot of voters who voted against him to vote for him. That is a huge psychological hurdle to overcome, one that is discounted by anybody who hasn't ever voted against Donald Trump. It is very difficult. The other way is to remake the electorate, bring out a lot of voters who aren't likely to vote, as he did in 2016, and totally scuttle the math. And that is a huge hurdle to overcome, especially if you have competitors on the ballot who are more likely to appeal to non, not low propensity voters like, for example, a RFK Jr. who will shake up the system. So if you had to put a gun to my head and said, look, Joe Biden's fundamentals are what they are, and Donald Trump's going to be on the ballot, will he, won't he? No. Donald Trump will not be reelected in November 2024, I say. Charlie? No, Donald Trump's not going to win. He's almost certainly going to win the primary. He's not going to win the general election. So I say yes. I think it's a 50-50 proposition. All I can offer you is my gut, which at the moment is yes. The second part of the double barrel, Jim Garrity, Nikki Haley will be on the ticket. Yes or no? No. No. Charlie? Mm, not if Donald Trump is. <laughs> but if Donald Trump isn't, she has a good chance of being on the ticket and at the top of it. So <clears throat> I'm going to make it a dangerous unanimous no, although I was talking to someone about this the other day and, and in the course of of giving my ultimate no and caveating, I was like, well, you know, she would ideologically balance the ticket and this would be a traditional... Um, you know, a traditional Veep choice to build the coalition out and, you know, get the 25% of the party that she really appeals to and Trump needs to show out and show up for him. And she's, uh, you know, a woman and she's uh, suburbanites like her, but no, he'll never pick her. But those are a lot of reasons to pick her. And, you know, they don't say they're not definitive. They don't say, no, there's no way she's ever going to be on the ticket. Steve Bannon's warning, you know, there's going to be a war over her uh, potentially being on the ticket. So I think it's a possibility but I'll go with the rest of you guys and say no as well. With that, before we get to our final segment, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus Digital Subscription Service at nationalview.com. Your way around our metered paywall, your way. If you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads, that makes the reading experience much more pleasant, I assure you. And it's your way to get deeper into our community. If that's something you want, to do. You can comment on our articles and blog posts, get invited to exclusive events and calls with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So it's a great deal all around and also a really important way to support our valuable journalism that's going to be more valuable than ever negotiating the shoals of this uh, um, fascinating and hazardous year that we're about to embark on in our politics. So Noah, talking about hazardous 
we have a, um, a big hit carried out by Israel in Lebanon. They uh, um, carried out this targeted killing of the deputy leader of Hamas. Really sad to see him go. This is the kind of thing that Israel uh, has to do to um, make its its campaign more comprehensively effective. It's one thing to root out the tunnels and the fighters, which obviously need to do, but you don't want the the leaders to uh, get away with this uh, atrocity that they planned and organized just because they happen not to be uh, in Gaza. So th- this was, uh, was, was a great victory for Israel. But you have uh, Hezbollah is warning, uh, warned prior to this, warning now that su- such attacks will be considered an attack on, on Hezbollah itself and will result in retaliation. What do you make of it? Well, first, it's not exactly a surprise for the reasons you said. The Netanyahu government has retailed and telegraphed its intention in no uncertain terms to hunt down the leaders of this organization, the planners of the 10-7 massacre, wherever they hide, and kill them. They're pretty straightforward about it, and this is one of the uh, first evidence that we've seen of some operations designed to achieve that objective. Um, As you say, the fear is that Hezbollah and Hasran Nasrallah, the leader of the organization, very well-armed, probably the foremost uh, uh, among Iran's cat's paws in the region uh, in terms of armaments and capabilities, will open up that second front. They've said that they will retaliate in the event that uh, Israel expands its campaign beyond southern Lebanon, which is, there have been some sporadic exchanges there, but that's the real fear. And the real test will be of whether Joe Biden means what he's directed his administration to do by placing all these naval assets off the coast of the Levant, which is designed to deter Hezbollah, designed to deter Iran. What happens if deterrence fails? Well, we've seen what happens when deterrence fails. Joe Biden does absolutely nothing. The Red Sea is shut down to international commerce. A group of goat herders with some improvised pipes have decided that they can and have achieved the shutdown of the international maritime commerce regime that the United States geopolitical order maintains. And Joe Biden has done nothing about it. What signal does that send to everybody? Iran, of course, Russia and China in particular. The signal that it sends is that you can do pretty much everything you want with impunity and will face very few offensive operations designed to restore deterrence. There's some sort of of a, the idea abroad that it's, rather thoughtless and kind of callous and very unsophisticated to suggest that something as complicated as a deterrent relationship can be established at the, you know, the pointy end of a precision guided munition. But that's precisely how it is established and how it is maintained. Joe Biden has demonstrated that he has very little stomach for that sort of thing, and it begets aggression. So I'm very concerned about how Hezbollah will respond to these incentives and how Washington will respond if Hezbollah makes a decision and Iran makes a decision that um, imperils the, the geopolitical situation further in the Middle East. So Jim, I mean, no, is absolutely right. This is just shocking. I mean, this is one of the, it's hard to, to think of a uh, humiliation where the disparity has been greater between the power of the country getting humiliated and and the power of the force doing the humiliating, you know, what are there? No, are there like two thousand Houthi fighters or something? Someone told me they saw that number. Oh, I don't know. That's the other very day. Low. I'm sure it's it's far well, more than that. But 
in terms of capacity, their operational eff- effectiveness, I think is you can, it's easy to overstate that this really is a ragtag militia. Yeah. The militia with, with a couple drones shutting down this major artery of world commerce. And, you know, the Iranians are sending a destroyer. Maybe you want to be nice and say, turn your destroyer around or sink into the bottom, but maybe you just want to send it to the bottom. And that would send a, 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 a signal that would be pretty unmistakable. So at the beginning of this crisis, quite a few folks, including some Republicans in Congress said, or kind of asked aloud, maybe even on this podcast, we'd said, why doesn't Biden say Hamas release the hostages or else? And the problem is, is that Hamas almost certainly was not going to release any of the hostages. They've only done so uh, under extreme duress and uh, when they get plenty of uh, released Palestinian prisoners in return uh, and, and aid packages and, and all that stuff. Um, but is it, you know, the or else would not be a sufficient uh, deterrent that, that you know, Hamas was not afraid of anything we could, do, we could hit them with. So you say or else, and let's say the U.S. did airstrikes on Hamas or something like that. Uh and it doesn't do it. Doesn't change anything. Doesn't get the hostages back. Then you, then you're stuck. You, you've you've played your best card, and you've shown that it's not effective in changing the the, the decision making of Hamas. Um, I suspect. That, but the weird thing is, is that this entire process, when it came to the possibility of strikes against U.S. forces in other countries, Iraq, Syria, and in the Persian Gulf, and uh, the, you know, at some point early on, Biden was saying, "Don't, don't." Don't do it, or I'll I'll come down on you like I came down on Corn Pop. Corn Pop was a bad dude. Um, <laughs> that, that that and of course that was the same kind of don't you dare. And the Houthis say, and also the Iranians, all kinds of other Iranian proxies saying, oh yeah, we dare. We're we're, we're not afraid of you. We're going to take these shots at you. Let's see what you got, Uncle Sam. Let's see how hard your counterpunch is, Great Satan. And we would blow up some warehouse over here or an ammunition dump over there. Certainly nothing enough that it was hard enough upon the Iranians to make those who are directing these militias and Houthi groups to say, oh, wait, okay, we don't want to do that. These guys really are uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, the U.S. military really is a tough target. And it's been building week after week, month after month. Um, And between this decision-making, Biden's statement post-Israel, post-October 7th to say, we will stand with Israel as long as it takes. And then within a couple of weeks, like, no, what they really meant was as long as we think it takes. We, we think you've done enough. We think you've you've hit the Gaza Strip enough. We think it's time for you to slow things down. We think it's time you to wind up the operation. Uh, clearly, to, and of course, you know, right now you look at the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have to be saying, oh, Biden said he's going to stand with us as long as it takes too. Then in the end, when Biden says, we'll stand with you as long as it takes, what he really means is we'll stand with you until it gets politically difficult, until I, until I start getting real pushback from the interns and from everybody else. At that point, he starts looking for the exit ramp. And that's, you know, I, I, you know, everybody from Beijing to Tehran to Moscow sees this and Pyongyang, you know, and they're like, OK, this guy can be rolled. You, 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 you don't beat the Americans face to face. You outlast them. And we don't have the stomach for these kind of fights. Certainly, we don't have a commander in chief. Charlie. Well, I don't have a huge amount to add, but I would just say that the core mistake that is being made here seems to me is the assumption that if the US doesn't do anything about this, then no one else will, or that nothing bad will happen. 
And I just think that's wrong. I mean, I think you weren't on the podcast when we first discussed the Houthis. But this is why you have a Navy at root. I mean, the worst thing that happens where you have to use your Navy is somebody invades you or you get involved in some horrendous war. But the primary reason you have a Navy and you try to project and maintain naval supremacy is to keep commerce and travel open. And if we can't do that, then we really are, we don't just look, we really are weak, behaving in a weak manner. And when you leave that vacuum, either someone else will fill it or you will pay the price for your weakness. And the same is true, I think, with Hezbollah. The Biden administration is something somewhat schizophrenic on the question of Israel and has sent mixed messages in the months following October 7th. Israel's not the country you do that with. And that might work if you're dealing with France. But Israel is going to take care of itself and its interests. And if the US doesn't help or walks away and refuses to provide moral support, that doesn't mean that the world suddenly gets peaceful. It means that the same problems exist and you have more unilateralism. So I I remain, as somebody who has very little expertise in this area, somewhat baffled by the Biden administration's thinking. Because I really do think that the White House and those who are advising it believe that you get to choose whether or not this stuff happens. That everything is uh, akin to a decision to invade a country preemptively or move a battle cruiser here. Mm -hmm. And it's not. It's not. The the world happens. Harold McMillan's events, dear boy, events happens. It will happen to every president. You cannot duck it by closing your eyes. Yeah, the thing is, they're always afraid of the other side escalating rather than making the other side fearful of our potential escalation. So Noah, next question to you. Eventually, the United States will end the Red Sea crisis on our terms and restore uninterrupted commercial commercial flow through that artery, yes or no? Well, yes, because there's no alternative. The alternative is what? To give up on the Suez Canal? (laughs) That's an insane (laughs) proposition. It's just not going to happen. So what is staying Joe Biden's hand? We've had so many reports on this. Some of them suggest, all of them revolve around the Saudis, what they want to happen in in Yemen. Sometimes it's Joe Biden doesn't want to be on the same side as the Saudis. Sometimes he is on the same side as the Saudis because they really want to find some sort of of a durable settlement here. It's all balderdash. It's all excuse making. It's just an effort to delay the inevitable. Joe Biden is very afraid of the exercise of American foreign power, American military power. He just is. And the longer he waits to do what needs to be done here, the worse the reputational damage America will suffer and the worse the geopolitical situation will deteriorate. Jim. Um, I wish I shared Noah's optimism that circumstances were going to force us to the right path. I think we'll end up with some sort of half-measure response um, that either the Houthis or or their paymasters and 
you know, puppet masters in Tehran will say, okay, let's dial it back a bit and we'll get to something resembling quote unquote normal. And you'll start to see ships going through again. And then you'll see some other like continuing series of strikes. It will become uh, just a, a risk that uh, shipping companies just have to accept. And it will be a it will be a slow process of hindering trade through this path. I gotta say, Jim, I disagree uh, with that. I don't sudden. think ships will will accept right. that. I don't think insurance companies will accept yeah. that. I don't think we've seen anything resembling deterrence being restored as a result of the handful of strikes we've executed against militias like Khatib Hezbollah, four now and counting. But we're talking about 118 as of now attacks on American service personnel. Until we see something dramatic, it won't. It, we will not see a restoration of the status quo ante. And until we see a restoration of the status quo ante, this will continue. It's an untenable situation. Charlie. Well, it's untenable. I mean, I, as I said, you, one of two things happens. Either someone else takes care of it or we just accept, as Noah says, that we now don't have full access to the Suez Canal. It's not going to happen. But, but you guys have something against the Cape of Good Hope? <laughs> it takes longer to get around it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go through the Straits of Malacca, too, which is in the late... And that's, no, that's not a great but, place either if you're afraid of piracy. I mean, we're talking about... Piracy all over the board here. I mean, yeah, I mean this, this, this is the kind of thing that Th- Thomas Jefferson, when yeah. when we were a zero on the geopolitical scoreboard, wouldn't tolerate. Yeah, I, I think the other thing here is that we are probably not going to see either of those outcomes. We're not going to give up on the Suez Canal, and we're probably not going to see another power taking care of the Houthis. What we're going to see is a crisis. The 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 Houthis will push it too far. Something will happen. I, either they will severely damage a ship, and there will be images broadcast around the world from Suez of some disaster, or the supply chains will be affected in such a way as it makes the news. And at that point, of course, we will have to fix it, or a lot of Americans die. Well, yeah, well, that's the worst case scenario. But that would precipitate the kind of response that we need to see. It's unfortunate that it's going to take that. So my my reflexes with Noah with his very strong statement about how unsustainable this is. But I've just you know looked at the U.S. border and I thought that was unsustainable since um, Biden took office and somehow it's been sustained. So I'm going to go with Jim. It's going to be kind of a muddling through situation where maybe it, the situation improves, but it's not uh, fully taken care of. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, the holidays have finally ended in the Garrity yeah. household. Yeah. Did you hear all that quiet behind me? How delightful <laughs> it was. Uh, we had a really good holiday Christmas season here in the Garrity household. My parents came up. My in-laws were here. We had friends over. It was all great. Uh, and then the following week when we did not tape an episode, we went snow to it. We did all the classic stuff. And because of the decision-making of Fairfax County Public Schools, my kids really have like two weeks and like a weekend on either side off. So it really adds up to like, you know, 16, 17 days uh, of being off. It was really great to have them around, not stressed by homework, not stressed by when they've got a test. And after two weeks, I can tell you, it's really great to see them go back to school. <laughs> Love them. Okay, I've got enough of them. Enjoy the homework, Actually, maybe guys. I can get enough of them. It's it's nice to get back to the the regular routines of life too. That's what makes Christmas special. And like, ah, oh, keep the spirit of Christmas with you all through the year. That has been my attitude towards the decorations I delay taking down. So Noah, you don't like to brag, but you've gotten an arcade machine. 
I know it's kind of gauche to talk about material things at the end of the holiday season. And yes, I had a great time with my family and it was lovely being around them and my wife's family and very much enjoyed it. But I got a thing and I really like it. It is a full-size arcade machine um, that, you know, you you kind of hack it. So you get a, a thumb drive that you go around the, the programming in this thing and it has like 10,000 games that were made before 1997, which is right in my nostalgic sweet spot. And I've always wanted this thing, and I'm very happy with it. It's a ton of fun. Good for you. Charlie, the game of Mousetrap, speaking of entertainment. Yeah, it's not as technologically advanced as Noah's <laughs> 10,000 vintage games on a thumb drive. It's a few pieces of plastic and a ball bearing. But <laughs> the game of Mousetrap, which I played as a kid, has now arrived in the Cook household courtesy of my kid's guess great uncle although they just call him uncle and is a massive hit right down to the joy that one feels when the mousetrap doesn't work there may be listeners who don't know what mousetrap is it's a very elaborate rube goldberg machine on a board it's a board game that takes place around this and if you land on certain squares then the uh, player uh, that you dislike the most invariably gets to set off the Rube Goldberg machine and try and trap, physically trap, your mouse in a net. And sometimes it just doesn't work. And often that's at the most dramatic moment. So we've had a great deal of uh, fun playing Mouse Trap over Christmas. So is, is, is the game as sturdy as you remember when you were a kid? Because for me, everything I remember from when I was a kid, when I get, get a, the contemporary version of it, I was like, this, this, is, this is crap compared <laughs> to what it used to be. I think it was always crap. But I, <laughs> I don't know because I haven't got both, I'm, I'm assuming. So I'm going to uh, rely. I had a, had a good like two and a half weeks off with some uh, vacation right before the, the holidays. So uh, we, we were down in South Florida for a while, and I went to a Miami Dolphins game against the Jets. Sorry, Jim, did not turn out very well. For the Jets, I, I didn't have a dog in, in the fight, but the, the Hard Rock Stadium is a really awesome uh, facility. I made the mistake, the amateur mistake, of buying tickets on the sunny side of the field, which there are some uh, sports facilities where you want to be in the sun, like Wrigley Field, and there's some where you don't want to be in the sun, like uh, Hard Rock. And there's a reason that the sun sunny side of the field is the visitor side of the field. But still, they're... they're uh, Pretty good seats. Abigail Anthony wrote, uh, the great Abigail Anthony wrote about her Zillow obsession on NRO a couple of weeks ago, just how she, she loves scrolling through Zillow, even if she's not going to buy a $10 million house. I'm kind of the same way with StubHub. I, I, I love looking at sporting events, especially I like sporting events of teams that aren't very good and, and see you know, how cheap a front row seat uh, could be say at a Detroit Pistons game or what, whatever it is. So, so these are this was actually an opportunity to buy on StubHub, and the seats were pretty good, and it was a lot of fun. With that, it's time for editor picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? So I'm going to go with Dan McLaughlin, who just went up this morning, our plagiarist president, and obviously all the attention on Claudia Gay. We have talked a great deal about um, plagiarism in this episode, but the entire instance in which you know joe biden is most infamous for plagiarizing 
really was weird. And the we've seen people have their political careers wrecked. We've seen people lose elections for much smaller sins than what uh, than what Joe Biden did. And what I love was the you know the assessment apparently came from David Greenberg and Slate back in two thousand eight, where he says. Biden didn't simply borrow the sort of boilerplate that counts as common currency in political discourse. What he borrowed was Kinnick's life. <laughs> and you just think about like, how weird is that? That of all the things you're going to plagiarize, somebody else's life story? Did he think nobody was ever going to go back and check these sort of thing? And this is what, you know, Dan lays out how this is one of the things that turned Joe Biden mostly into a punchline up until about 2008 when Barack Obama selected him as his running mate in what I can only assess was assassination insurance and decided that that was going to, uh, and that, that turned Joe Biden into a major player in the Obama administration in democratic politics. And only because of that is Joe, did Joe Biden run for president? And only because of that is Joe Biden president. Um, and so you kind of look at this, it's interesting, this, you know, like uh, an early example of how, if you're rich enough, powerful enough, well-connected enough, you could do something really wrong and really bad. And in the case of bio stealing Kinnock's life story, just weird and inexplicable and really escape any major consequences. Yeah. You only do that if you are a BS artist of the first order, right? Which, which Joe Biden is. Noah, what's your pick? I'm going to go with Andy McCarthy's piece published New Year's Day. Why Christie's gall is worse than Haley's gaff. <clears throat> it's a big disquisition on the state of the race. And um, he you know, gives Haley no quarter, uh, which she probably doesn't deserve. But he also pivots to Chris Christie, who's trying to make as much hay of this as possible for his own uh, political prospects and just strips the bark off of him in a way that I found especially uh, satisfying and enlightening. Uh, Andy McCarthy is a, is a keen legal analyst, but he's also a pretty sharp pundit when he wants to be. And this is a good one. Yeah, Chris Christie, he's got to be the most unpopular person ever to run for for his for own party's party. presidential nomination, right? I mean, he's like 70% unfavorable in some polls. He's more favorable among Democrats and independents than he is among Republicans. Been, and you and I just, have been one, some of those people who've appreciated his debate performances, found that but the mm -hmm. performance alone, the dramaturgy of it to be very compelling and very good, but there's just no receptivity to his message. Yep, none. Charlie? I'm going to take Wilfred Riley. The piece in question is about crime. It's about whether or not there is systemic racism in the justice system. Wilfred Riley says they're not. He points to a big new study. But just in general, I really enjoy reading Wilfred Riley. He's one of those people who doesn't particularly care what the conventional wisdom is or what anyone says to him he just writes what he wants and he's been a great addition to the offerings at nro so noah has done great stuff on the red sea crisis but i'm going to pick dominic pino's work on the red sea crisis dominic as everyone who reads nro knows is is overwhelmingly an economics guy but the one thing that can make him into a fierce-minded foreign policy writer, and that's an attack on the U.S. supply chain in any of its aspects, which Dominic will not uh, tolerate. And his, his stuff on this has been really uh, uh, forceful and persuasive. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly 
prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Moink, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you 